up, everyone? I hope you are doing well today. This is Rafael Garcia here for episode 167 of the MMA Reigns podcast. I'm here to talk to my man, Shawan Humes, about a couple of different things in the world of MMA. So with that in mind, man, Shawan, first let everybody know how you're doing. Uh, fine, man. Busy as always. No complaints, though. Just staying busy. Sure, how about I yourself? That. I'm good, sir. I'm good, man. Just another busy day. In the hood, gee, that's really how it always goes. Yeah, I got Father's Day coming up, but I don't expect it to be too spectacular. Mother's Day is the day everybody gets happy. Father's Day is like the crap day of holidays. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> y'all get the short end of the uh, short end of the stick. Yeah, it's all right though. But so let's get got, to talk to some mixed martial arts today. Yeah, man, we got quite a bit to talk about when it comes to MMA. So let's go ahead and hop in that space um but before we do i want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast as we always do um you can find us on our flagship first and foremost which is mmaratings.net where you can find all of our written content you can go there you can rate the fights let us know what you thought about the fights that just passed and also use our star system to tell us how excited you are for fights coming up and you can catch all of our podcast content, which includes this show on Tuesdays and our wrestling podcast, which comes out later on in the week. You can catch us on Spotify, um, Apple, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Anchor, which is our main main station. And you can also always go over to YouTube, go to MMA Ratings, and catch all of our content there as well. I am Rafael Garcia. Find me on Instagram and Twitter at rgarcia underscore sports. Schwan Humes is my co-pilot, uh, co co-host, and you can catch him at Black Jordan Breen. And let's go ahead and jump right into it because we want to start off with talking about UFC Vegas 2, which was this past Saturday, where we saw a couple of different things. And, and it's funny, we were talking about how this isn't a... This isn't a much of a fight car on paper. People were upset the minute that this that the main event between Jessica I and Cynthia Cavio got announced. People were pretty inflamed and upset about this card. But as with as which some of these cards do, um, excuse me, as some of these cards go, this one uh, really delivered, in my opinion. I watched from start to finish because I was working the event that night. And it really, really delivered. They had the first three fights ended in under a combined two minutes. And then we also had another fight that ended in the first round. And we had some pretty interesting three-round fights as well from there. And then Cynthia Calvillo did what she needed to do to win a five-round decision over Jessica I. So we're going to start with Cynthia first and talk about her position in now her new division, the flyweight division, where she made her debut at 125. She defeated a former contender. And Jessica pretty handily, I don't, she may have lost the first round, but uh, I believe she won the final four after that. And looking at this division, Schwan, where do you think Cynthia goes next? Because she's probably, I'm interested in seeing where she's ranked after, after this fight, knocking off the number one contender in the division, even though she was coming off of a loss to the champion. What do you think is next in this group and where would you like to see her go? Or who would you like to see her face next? Well, the main thing, the first thing I like to discuss is uh, Jessica actually put a win together after that loss to Valentina, so she was on a one-fight win streak. Um, Did she? Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, she, it was a pretty dominant win. Um, it's hard to really know with Calvillo 
because I didn't see a lot of technical growth with her. The biggest adjustments I saw, maybe training with AKA, they made her more aggressive, a little bit more aggressive in searching for takedowns and a little bit more aggressive in her counter. Sometimes she likes to sit back and, and give up a lot of ground and not really fire back. She seemed a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more willing to engage in grappling exchanges and impose her will a little bit. Technically, I didn't see a lot of growth. And it's hard to gauge her because Jessica I, and I, I wrote multiple articles about this, Jessica I, since dropping weight, you have, I haven't seen a lot of technical growth. What I've seen is that she's bigger and stronger and more physical than a lot of the girls at the division. So the mistakes she makes aren't fight-ending mistakes. They're not costing her because now she has a size and physicality to get out of spots or she has a fi- size and physicality to stay in safe spots. So when you're facing a person who's an average at best technician but who's got physical attributes, it's hard to gauge the quality of performance when that person has a hard time making weight because you know that advantage of physicality, that durability, that physical strength advantage no longer exists because she doesn't have the cardio or the energy necessary to really impose her will. The first round, she was some competitive. She held her own. She might have won. But after that, the conditioning got to where she had nothing else. And she essentially got pushed back, bullied, countered, and taken down and, and out-grappled and out-wrestled by a, a smaller and for all intents and purposes, a physically weaker fighter. So it's hard to tell where to rank Cynthia just because we don't know, we, just because A, just guy isn't all that great technically, and B, just guy was compromised physically. It's hard to really gauge how good Cynthia is. The good news for her is the division outside of the champion is still fairly thin. It's a bunch of girls who, who are on the do- downside of the career. You got Rossi Matafari. Um, oh God, I can't think of her name right now. But you got a lot of girls who are older who are on the decline physically and athletically. And then you got a lot of girls who are younger, but they haven't really been tested and they're not really seasoned as far as the level of opposition they face. So in that regards, Calvillo has a huge experience advantage over half the half the division. And then she's got a huge athletic and and a lot less road mileage on her odometer than the other half of the division. So in that regards, she's probably no worse than top three, top five type fighter. I mean, you put her against her and Rossi Matafari with that 50-50 fight, her against Caitlin Chukagan with that 50-50 fight. Those are two top t- two top five girls in the weight class right now. So it's it's hard to say that she wouldn't, uh, she's not at least, at least top three, maybe top five or worse. She beat the number one girl in the division outside of the champion. So, I mean, you, by, by proxy, you have to put her in at least top three. So my first thought is, what do you do with her next in reference to like what fight she should take? If you look at the rankings right now, we know um, Joanne Calderwood is fighting Valentina next. Calvillo already has a win over her. Actually, looking at the rankings right now, they've just been updated. Perfect timing, because I was looking at them earlier today, and they were not. Caitlin Chukagian is number one still. Cynthia Calvillo is number two. And Joanne Calderwood, who is fighting for the title next, is number three. Do you agree with that? Um, I guess given given the wins they've had in division, I guess I guess you could you could say because uh, JoJo's had some pretty bad losses in division. Calvillo, even though she had one win, it's the biggest win. It's it's the win over the number one and number two person division. And then you have Kaylee Chukagan who lasted longer than Jessica I in the challenge and who, who had been on a win streak in her time. So it, it's hard not to argue those rankings right now. Um, I would say that you put Calvillo in with either one of those girls and it's, it's a 50-50 fight. I mean, she's already beaten, she beat, she beat Calderwood, but that was a real 
back and forth, fairly even fight. What I don't, I don't know. What weight was that fight at? I don't remember. Was uh, that 115? Yeah, it was at straw weight. Yeah, straw weight. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, she's got a win over that creates a storyline, but she's not going to get to her before um, Valentina does. I guess you could always play the angle of fighting if Calderwood does, is competitive, fighting her and then proving that she can beat her in a more handily fashion. But yeah, that ranking sounds about right. I mean, once again, Calvillo hasn't done anything except beat I, but given I's ranking and given the fact they want Calvillo to be a thing, I'm not surprised that she's ranked so high off of one win. I wonder if we've seen this in the past. I can't remember a time where someone's made a change to a new division, fought someone that highly ranked and immediately got a title shot. Like did, like, because the only time I can really think of it in recent memory is when a champion moves up in a weight class and usually they fight for the title right out the gate. So I can't think of a time when someone's made a jump up like that and fought a high contender and taken their spot and like basically supplanted the whole division in one fell swoop. Can you think of any? To be honest, no. I, I don't know of any time when somebody's just moved up a division and just been gifted shot. No, you know what? Take that back. Didn't no Frankie Edgar dropped a weight class and got a title shot after a lose, yeah. after losing. That's that's the only time I can think of it. Interesting. So looking at this group next, we have Chukagian who's ranked above her, Calderwood below her, I and Maya. That ranks out the top five. If you were working with Cynthia's management team, do you tell her to hold off and wait for a title shot? Or do you take her to so you tell her to take a fight against a top contender next. Um, I'm really kind of conflicted. I I feel, I feel like, I feel like they want her to get a title fight, but I don't. I don't think they're just. I don't think they're gonna. And nobody else is. If Calderwood loses, eyes lost, and Chukagan loses, it's pretty much a cakewalk to a title fight. So in that regard, I guess I have her hold out. The best case scenario I would feel was for her to get at least another fight in because when you tra- when you switch camps, it takes a fight or two for you to really develop, not just learn the skills mentally, but actually be able to apply them automatically. It takes time. You can't just go from being a, a reactive takedown person to an aggressive takedown person overnight, not, not when you're under pressure. It takes reps. It takes live reps. It takes having the experience in a fight for you to get that feel, get that comfort, to where you can make it second nature. And going against Valentina, you're going to have a very small margin for error. And if you're making a b- bunch of stylistic changes, there's a good chance that they're not going to stick when you're put under extreme duress and she's going to be put under duress against a w- woman who, if you make one or two mistakes, essentially the fight's over. Ch- Caitlin Chukagan made like three mistakes in the fight. Fight was over. Jess Guy essentially made one. Fight was over. Liz Carmouche went the whole five rounds just because she refused to engage. And, and she pretty much fought almost mistake-free and not engaging. But anybody who's fought Valentina, th- every mistake they made, she's paid for it. And I don't know that you can get that kind of feel and that understanding and the context for what you're doing when you're sitting on the sidelines just training. It, it's great because it gives you a chance to really work it and, and develop it, but you still haven't had it in a live situation, and that matters. So you brought up the space of the mistakes that the other individuals made in their fights. And it kind of makes me think of a question that I've seen bouncing around about Calvillo and her skill ceiling. Have we, have we seen 
the best that she has to, not necessarily has to offer, but have we seen her ceiling already? Because looking at her last few fights, even even the fight she lost against Carla Esparza, you got to wonder where her growth, where does it come into play? And I think the biggest thing against Valentina, the biggest weapon she has to use or she would have to use is her, her ground game. But my watching her wrestle, watching her compete on Saturday, the first thought that comes to mind is, is her wrestling good enough to get the fight down to the ground? She's Honestly, at the right I, place. She's at the right gym to help her get there with AKA wrestling with some of the people they have there. But I wonder if she has, if she's going to be able to put it together enough to get, um, to get the fight to the floor against Valentina because she can't stand and, and, and try to strike with her. I don't know. Is she really though? Because I mean, Khabib's there and he's a great wrestler, but he was a great wrestler before. Daniel Cormier's there, but Daniel Cormier was an Olympian. So I don't know how much they're wrestling determined i don't remember luke rocco being a great wrestler josh koshek was fairly decent i don't remember a lot of their guys just being so dominant from wrestling just trained there a lot of the guys were so i mean john fitch but all these guys have all these guys had extensive wrestling backgrounds yeah i'm gonna argue on that one because i mean they, but think about this they didn't, they didn't, wasn't decent he was a ncaa champion but but that was what he did before now for us yeah. the hobby for us the hobby took George St. Pierre, who wasn't a wrestler, and made him one of the best MMA wrestlers of all time. AKA has never taken somebody who didn't already have those chops and install them. What about Luke Rock? Was he a wrestler before? But he didn't. Yeah, he, didn't really he, he, wrestled, he, wrestled, he wrestled in high school, but I mean, I don't remember yeah. Luke Rock being a great takedown guy. A great grappler, yeah, but great takedown guy? Yeah, I don't remember that. I'm not saying they can't do it. I'm just saying I haven't seen them take a person who was a so-so wrestler and turn them into some kind of beast. I've seen people take non-strikers and turn them to great strikers, non-grapplers into great grapplers. Uh, George St. Pierre went from an okay wrestler, not even really wrestling experience, to one of the best MMA wrestlers in in history. When did AKA take somebody who didn't have an extensive wrestling background and make them a good wrestling wrestler? I'm, I'm trying to think of the people they've had in their camps over the years, and I can't think of anyone. Because like you said, most of the people were wrestlers when they came in. Um, now, like, I mean, tra- training with those guys will help. It'll get you, they can teach you little details. They can work things in with you. But she already came from a wrestling having camp in the first place, Team Alpha Male, and her wrestling still wasn't great. So I'm, I'm wondering if she's just not, maybe there's a, a physicality, maybe there's a gap mentally where she can't, she can't really get the wrestling going unless it's strictly off reactive takedowns. It's, she's not really known for her grinded out nature or chaining takedowns together and all that kind mm-hmm. the grappling is high level the wrestling is like misha tate she's a so-so wrestler but a really good grappler once it hits the ground she's a beast but getting into the ground she's not great at and the fact she kept taking jessica eye down makes me wonder about jessica eye's wrestling because that was uh cynthia Calvillo is not known as a takedown machine not from what i've seen in fights and i think let me actually that is let me pull up something to see here because that makes me wonder now um, because what I think, what I think of is Jessica, I looked like she was a stronger fighter on Saturday. She looked two Look, divisions bigger too. Yeah. Looking at Cynthia's, um, performance record, her stats here, she's scored a takedown in every fight except the one against Courtney Casey, at least one takedown. She scored one against Amanda Cooper, one against Pearl Gonzalez, two against Joanne Calderwood. One against Carla Esparza, which kind of says a lot because she's a standout wrestler. Two against um, Pauliana Botello. Uh, she didn't have any against Courtney Casey. She had three against Marina Rodriguez, and then she had four 
against Jessica I. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm not saying she's a terrible wrestler. I just, I just don't see her wrestling. I mean, we're not talking Tatiana Suarez. Like, that, yeah, that's we're not talking about that. I mean, like I said, I think the Misha Tate, like I said, on the ground, she gets your back real close. She threaten you, but her takedown, I don't see it. I don't see it. And that. I wonder what the size difference is going to be like, because we know Valentina is a, is a, is a strong competitor at uh, this weight class. So I wonder how much of a problem that will be in the future as well. Well, it's going to be a problem because she won't be able to bully her. Physicality will work, but when you're facing someone who's also a better athlete, who's also a physical fighter and bigger than you, the physicality backfires because you're spending all this energy trying to get him up against the cage or drag him down. And not only are they fighting you there, with somebody like Valentina, she's sneaking shots in. She's making you pay to get in the range, and she's punishing you while you're in the range. And if she gets you off balance with a knee to the, knee to the gut, knee to the head, a short uppercut or a close-in hook, then you know what's going to happen next. She hits that judo throw, arm, and, arm head throw, gets in a clinch, leg trip, leg sweep, Put you down and then it's all over. That's the big that's the big thing about Valentina. Not only is she a better striker, she's genuinely got better fight IQ. She's bigger and stronger. She's a better athlete. She's got better timing and she hits harder than 99% of the people in the division. She's got every athletic advantage. And then she's got 85% of the technical advantages. Because most of the girls in there aren't good enough wrestlers to get her to the ground. And even if they're good enough grapplers, because they're not good enough wrestlers, they can't get her into the positions and secure position well enough to put her under pressure where she'll make a mistake. So it's like, it's a, it's a complete uphill battle. You've almost got to fight a perfect fight just to have a chance. And she, she's in a division full of girls who don't know how to fight perfect fights. Jessica is the epitome of a mistake, low, mistake prone, low IQ fighter. Ch- Caitlin Chukagan is good and scrappy as she is. She's terribly inaccurate and she's not defensively sound. And Jojo Calderwood for as good as she's been tends to fight in a low IQ manner and is a slow starter and isn't really athletic. So she walks into every fight with, out of the 10 advantages, she walks into every fight with seven to eight of them. And that's really hard to beat. True. What do you think? Um, let's move on to our next fight, actually. And I want to talk about Marvin Vittori and Carl Robertson. This one kind of surprised me a little bit. I wasn't expecting this fight to go this way, but Vittori showed a very, you know, you just talked about just guy being a low IQ fighter at times. Vittori showed the exact opposite, where he did enough with his striking to get Robinson to move just enough to open up his grappling and, and get the finish there. What do you think is next for Vittori? Because he made it clear to call out uh, Israel Adesanya, and it makes it seem like he's the, the individual who Adesanya didn't blow through and is the toughest challenge for him. Who do you think Vittori will face off against next? Let's see where he is ranked right now coming off of Saturday's win. Because I think that that was, a, that was an impressive win for him. He's ranked number 14. So where would you like to see him go next in this division? Just anybody above him. I don't know that he deserves a top 10. Maybe a, maybe a, maybe a top 10 as in the 10th opponent. Because you, he, get, he gave Israel some issues. But that was when Israel was very fresh to the sport. Really hadn't figured out his style. Really had to figure out his timing. Really had to figure out his spacing as it pertains to mixed martial arts at that level. Second of all, the fact of the matter is, he didn't come, he made it difficult. He didn't come close to beating them. He just made it, he just got beaten in less spectacular fashion. While that matters, there's some value to that. There's a difference between nipping, Kevin Galsalin got a lot closer to beating Israel Adesanya than, than Vittori did. Anderson Silva was actually more competitive against Israel Adesanya than Vittori was. So a blown up welterweight, who really shouldn't be fighting at middleweight, gave him a really tough fight, tougher fight than you. 
and a man who's been past his prime for at least six to seven years gave him a better fight than you. So while I understand what he's saying, he doesn't have enough legs to stand on that. I like the fact that he called him out, call a big name, take a shot, put that pressure on yourself. But there's no way he's getting that fight. He needs to slowly move his way back up and prove that he can really separate himself. Because in fighting Carl Roberson, it was a good win. He, Like you said, he used the strikes to open up the takedowns. He kind of changed his takedowns. He set a certain pace. He was able to um, keep keep Roberson on the defensive where he couldn't really assert himself, get any forward pressure, or really look for any counters because he was constantly being pressured and constantly having his space taken away from him. Very smart, very heady. But in beating Roberson, it wasn't like it was a dynamic win. It wasn't like a win where you're like, oh, my God, this guy, we've been sleeping on him. He He's clearly above this caliber opponent. It was a clean, clinical, smart win, but it wasn't dynamic. It wasn't super impressive. It didn't tell me that you can't put this guy in with a lower level guy because he's going to walk through him. It told me he's better than this caliber guy. Let's see what's next. To me, he'd have to get at least another two fights before you give him somebody in the top seven to five. He, he, won, he won well, but a guy who talks the way he talks or makes the demands he makes, I expect to see him walk through the kind of guy like Carl Roberson. So looking at the division, you know, you said you mentioned number 10. That's Uriah Hall. Well, Hall's just got announced and facing Yoel Romero um, later on this year. Omari Akhmedov is fighting Chris Weidman as well. Maybe Brad Tavares or Eden Hines. Maybe that's too close for him, and he doesn't think that, that that's a high enough ranked fight. But I would like to see him fight someone that is ranked above him. He looked good, uh, and I'm not – And I, I was expecting the opposite. I thought that – Carl Robertson would be able to do enough to get the victory. And I thought he was going to stop Marvin, but looking at the way he performed on Saturday, I am interested in seeing him fight someone, maybe like a Derek Brunson or something like that too. Like Derek Brunson is a guy who is getting. I think Derek Brunson has, Brunson has a fight coming. If I recall correctly, Brunson has a fight with that Edmund. I can't remember his last name. Edmund Spazian. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that makes sense. But there's guys there, Kelvin Gastelum as well. So like there's guys there. Yeah, I I, like that, I said, he makes this he makes this division much more interesting. It was a good win against Roberson. He the main thing was he put pressure. He constantly had him defending takedowns, strikes, submissions. He's for and when you're constantly under duress, unless your skills and your awareness is razor sharp, you're going to make mistakes. They're putting pressure on you to make you give them what they want, and he couldn't he couldn't match up to that. I don't know that against the best guys in the division does that work? Does that work against the old Romero? Does that approach work against the Uriah Hall? Does that approach does that approach work against a Robert Whitaker? Does that work against Arizona Desanya? Does it work against uh you know, like I, I don't know seeing what he showed in that fight if what he does would have worked against a higher caliber opponent. I'm not saying it wouldn't have, but against a guy who's got a little bit more season or maybe has enough physicality and athleticism to blunt his forward pressure, what happens when he gets put on the back foot? What happens when somebody starts putting combinations on him? You know. It was very impressive. It was very good, but he didn't allow Roberson to get started. And against the best guys in the division, they're gonna, they're going to have their spots. They're good enough athletes. They've got enough experience. They've got enough strategic awareness that the plan A isn't going to be enough to get through them. Just just based on based on athleticism alone, plan A isn't going to be enough to get through Brunson, Hall, Romero, Adesanya. Just just on that, Robert Whitaker. Just on athleticism alone, that approach isn't going to be good enough. So the question is, when he goes to a plan B, or when he's put on the back foot. And he's under duress. How does he respond? Roberson had the had the ability to, but he 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 started too slow. And once the momentum was got, he didn't have anything in him to turn the fight around. 
all those guys I named have the ability to turn a fight around at any singular moment. What happens when he's in that spot is the question. So, yeah, you give him a guy higher up, but you make him have to earn his spot so that when he gets to the top of the division, he can actually put forth a good performance for himself. It's not a one-sided fight. It's not a fight where there's questions. It's not a fight where he's out of his element, where there's any excuses. You make him earn his way so that he's fully prepared for what he's getting into and the division can kind of round itself out and we can have a clear line of line of uh, ascension when talking about challengers or potential contenders. You, and I, if he would have just walked through him, like, it was, it was very impressive, but it just didn't strike me enough against a high enough guy for me to say he needs to be elite. He needs to be in title talks. I don't see that at all. No, I, I just don't see it. I need to see more, and I yeah, need to see it against a better guy. I don't think he's. Uh, I don't think he should be in, in title talks either. I think that's a little bit too soon. But he, I do want to see him against someone in the top ten, top top. Excuse me, top ten to fifteen. So let's talk about the rest of the card. What else stood out for you at UFC Vegas too? Uh, I saw the Julia Avia fight. That was good. Um, she was she was putting with Gina Mazzani, and Mazzani isn't a terrible fighter, but she's a very she's basically what men's MMA used to be 20 years ago, where she's got a, a certain a limited amount of skill, but she's very tough. She's physically strong. She's a physical fighter, but she doesn't have the skills or the awareness to compete with better athletes and better skilled fighters. And um, it was, a, I mean, Avia did what she's supposed to. She got her out of there. She did so in impressive fashion. But once again, it was against a girl who we were expecting for her to get out there. So you see the talent, you see the potential in her. But you need to see Avia against opponents who have the skills and athleticism to push back against her before she can build back some of the hype she lost when she fought uh, Tracy Cortez, if, I, if I'm not correct. I think she lost to Cortez before, if I'm not correct. Um, and as far as the rest of the fights, I thought they were, a lot of them were really good fights. But I thought part of the, people, people mistake fights that have stoppages for being good. And a lot of these fights, to me, were fights that were a little bit... They were matched. They were match made in a manner that w- was supposed to give you an explosive win. Some of these guys fighting in this card aren't UFC level type fighters, and they're in there because of their camp affiliation, because of their wife, maybe because they were beating up on a bunch of people on the regional level. But as far as their actual skill level and talent, some of them aren't UFC caliber, and that's why you saw those fights ending so decisively and so one-sidedly because one person's a UFC fighter as far as skill and ability. And another person shouldn't be in the UFC as far as skill and ability. And that's why you see such one-sided, fairly impressive wins. It looks impressive if you're casual, but if you're a fan of the sport, you know that some of these people shouldn't have even been in the cage. Hannah Cypher is fighting again after two, two, two weeks, a month or something. She shouldn't have been there. Gina Masani shouldn't have been there. I mean, a lot of these people just, they, they didn't have the experience necessary to compete with the level, with the opponent they were facing that night. So were the fight, was the fight caught more exciting than it should have been expected? Yeah. That's because the fights were uneven in the matchmaking. When the fight's a little bit more even, you never know if it's going to be exciting or if it's going to be boring because you have skill, experience, and athleticism that cancels each other out and can make it really dynamic or really boring. But when you've got essentially squash, match, squash matches, you're going to see one-sided beatings and you're going to see quick finishes. As you face better opposition, knockouts and submissions fall off because you're facing guys who have answers, physical durability, or athleticism to counter that. At the lower level, that's why you see guys with 15 submissions in a row, and they get the UFC, and they're they're uh, five and they're five and one, and they only got one submission. Why is that? Facing a better level of opposition, so w- it was exciting to watch. But the card, the matchups weren't particularly good. Even the main event, in in actuality, wasn't really all that great as far as skill level. 
Very interesting thoughts there, sir. I thought it was good. It, it, it was a good night of fights. I was in for the long haul, but I got an enjoyable night. Uh, I was working for Fight Metric that, that day, so I was tracking some tracking some numbers. But it was still a, an enjoyable night of fights for everyone that was involved. And speaking of enjoyable night of fights, we had some fights this weekend, too. And I think these fights have more at stake. To go against what you were just saying a second ago, we have four fights that I think have immediate ramifications in their divisions with Curtis Blades and Alexander Volkov fighting in the heavyweight division, Josh Emmett and Shane Burgos in featherweight, Raquel Pennington and Marion Renault in women's bantamweight, and Roxanne Matafari and Lauren Murphy in the flyweight, women's flyweight division. So let's talk about Blades and Volkov first. Blades is sitting at number three, and the division of Volkov is sitting at number seven. For some reason, Volkov is, a, is, is sneaky, sneaky good, I, and I can't believe that he's flying under everyone's radar still. Yeah. Um, he has the range and everything. that I, he's had, He has the range, and he has the technique. Other than, other than, I mean, even in that fight that he lost against Derek, Lewis, when he uh, was winning most of that fight, they got his face blown apart at the very end. He's looked a lot better than people give him credit for. What are your thoughts about this fight on Saturday in this main event? Um, in the heavyweight division, you're essentially never further than two fights out from from uh, being a potential contender just because it's so thin and it's so, so uh, uneven in the performances of the fighters. Uh, I think it's a good fight. Uh, I, I never really know what to make of Curtis Blades. He's so hit or miss to me it's like he has all the physical tools and the physical skills i mean to to really be extended he's young he's a he's a fairly young guy he's not he's not really old he's athletic he hits pretty hard he's got a good wrestling background his striking isn't particularly great but it's it's not it's not low grade the biggest issue with him is he's never been able to consistently mix it up in fights he's always wrestle strike and take down wrestle or strike he that there's a little spot in between there where he's never been able to make the connections and when he's faced guys who can who have the athleticism and maybe a style necessary to to attack that that's when he's had problems the thing about it is so many guys in the heavyweight division aren't better athletes than him and even though all heavyweights hit pretty hard and are pretty tough the fact of the matter is most of the heavyweights aren't even most of the heavyweights aren't true knockout guys, and most of them aren't even particularly durable. So just based off his wrestling and his physicality, he's able to overwhelm a lot of them. The one instance where he faced a guy like Ngannou, where he couldn't out-athlete him, he couldn't bully him, and he had a guy who's a counter-striker and a really sharp one at that, he was able to exploit that, that little inability to transition ranges smoothly or, or exit ranges smoothly. Ngannou was able to make him pay, but most guys aren't Ngannou, and Volkov for as experienced as he is and as tough as he is and, and at the higher pace he fights and the volume he fights with, he's not the athlete Ngannou is. He's not the striker as far as the power goes. He's probably a better technical striker, but he doesn't have the power, nor does he have the athleticism. So it's going to be a matter of whether he can push a pace fast enough that's going to make Blades work, even work for the takedown, work to get in range for the takedown, work to get the takedown, work once he has the takedown, and work to keep him down. If he can fight w- with enough pace, that he can exhaust them and then late overwhelm them with the volume, maybe go for a finish, or possibly using his range if he can keep blades at a at a keep keep blades off him and pick him apart at range. I just don't know that he's got the footwork necessary for that, and I don't know that he has the poise and awareness necessary. He's been a guy who can look sterling, look dynamic, look incredibly in control, and then make. 
just the most ridiculous mistakes in a fight that'll cost him. And against somebody like Blades, who seems to be a little bit more durable and seems to be a better, more physical and the better athlete, I don't know that he has a, a large margin for error against a guy like that. So I, I expect Blades to, I expect Blades to win and, and win handily. But I don't think that Volkov has the skills to test him to answer the questions I need to have answered before or I can consider him a legit contender. Because I don't consider you a legit contender unless you have a chance of being the champion. And from what I've seen from him, I still don't think he has a chance of being the champion because he has a hard time putting it all together as far as transitioning between ranges and being defensively sound and responsible between all ranges. So let's talk about the outcomes of a victory here because, as I said, Blaze is sitting at three, Volkov is sitting at number seven. We know that on August 15th, Stipe and Cormier are fighting for their trilogy fight. I really do personally do believe no matter who wins there, both guys will walk away from the sport. Cormier already is talking about that's his last um, fight. And I think Cipe is kind of fed up. <laughs> I think he's like, um, um, overall, you bitches. So he may be on his way out of the uh, sport too. Do you see, like, Nganu's there. He is basically the number one contender after they fight. Do you see a situation where, let's say, Nganu fights the winner, Cipe and Cormier? Are we looking at one of these two guys being the next contender up after that? I definitely think it could be Volkov if he wins and wins handily. But what are your thoughts about that? Do we do you think we're watching someone who was the next contender um, on on Saturday? Um, I mean, if if, if you, it goes like you think it does, I mean, if Cormier retires, which almost uh, is almost a certainty, and whoever wins is going to be a contender. And like you said, I, I agree with you. Stipe might retire too. So whoever wins is going to be in the contender spot. Um, Against Nganu, I, I can't favor either one of them against Nganu, to be quite honest. I really can't favor, favor either one of them against Nganu. I don't know if I favor, favor either one of them against Derek Lewis. You know, so they might be a contender, but if both one of those guys retires and both of them retire, that essentially leaves Nganu fighting for an interim championship. And let's say he fights Blades. I'm not saying Blades can't beat him. You know, third time may be the charm, but I'd have to see Blades show and improve in the areas that I've discussed. He has a hard time transitioning between ranges effectively being offensively effective and defensively responsible enough to navigate those ranges without paying a price. And against other heavyweights, you can get chipped up a little bit. Like Mark Hunt hit hard, but Mark Hunt didn't have, didn't have the speed or the timing of Nganu. Other guys have caught him in those spots, but they don't have the speed or the, or the power to make him pay the way that Nganu does. And if they fight a third time, I don't know that I don't know what's changed in Blades. I haven't seen enough of a change or, or face a guy comparable enough to Nganu to say that, oh, hey, if he fights Nganu, I've seen, I've seen how he has an answer to this now. And again, in the case of Volkov, he could be a contender too, but the fact of the matter is he's already been knocked out by the first or second heavy, heaviest hitter in the division in Derek Lewis. He just collapsed under pressure and made, and made a bad mistake, fought, fought the wrong fight and totally exposed himself. And I've seen other fights where he's been physically overwhelmed by better athletes. Not guys who are better technicians, but guys who are just bigger, stronger, more physical and durable athletes. So if he faces Nganu, I haven't seen him show... If he beats Blades, it will be the first time I've seen him face a physically superior athlete, more durable athlete, and dictate terms and win the fight. So with both of them, whether they win or lose, I don't know that I'll have the answers necessary to say that they'd be favorites over Nganu. But if, but either way, to answer your question, if Stipe and or Cormier retire, the next best heavyweights are going to be up for the for the title, and that would be Nganu and whoever else is fighting. 
And in the UFC's case, I guess they want Volkov because Ngannou's beat Blades twice and he's beat him by KO. And that'd be really hard to sell that fight, I think. I mean, no matter what, it'd it just be really hard to sell that fight. But whoever wins out of this fight on, on Saturday is going to be the num- number one contender or number two contender. And they'll be fighting Ngannou for the title if um, Cormier or Stipe retires. And if for some reason Cormier or Stipe doesn't retire, I don't favor Volkov or Blades against either one of them. For the same reasons, I don't favor them against Ngannou. You're facing better athletes with better skill sets and more seasoning who can exploit the, exploit the holes you have in your game. I mean, I'm right there with you, sir. I look at this heavyweight division, and I just can't get excited about this division in any way, shape, or form. Not when JDS is sitting at number five, and you know he's been a shell of himself for the last few years. You just can't yeah. get excited about this group. But I mean, I you know, Overeem, and the, the, think about this, Overeem's been in, in a, been a fighter for how long? And he's still in the top what? Top five? Top eight. He, he is number top, eight. Top, top eight. I mean, it's it's just an old man's club, and it's just, it's almost sad to watch a little bit. You know, you see these guys getting bragging about beating somebody up who's been fighting for 20 years. Really, man? That's what you're bragging out? You're beating up somebody, somebody's dad who could be a, a grandfather at some point? It, it's just almost sad sometimes to watch. It is. So let's move up from there and let's talk about Josh Emmett and him and Shane Berg also fighting in the featherweight division in the co-main event. This is an important fight because in prepping for tonight's show and something else I was working on, looking at these two guys, I really thought that this could be a fight or we're we're looking at someone that could be fighting for the title next year. We have Alexander uh, Volkanovski defending his title against Max Holloway on July 11th, and I think they made that rematch because they felt like they didn't have anywhere else to go for a big name for that card. Volkanovski won his belt pretty handedly against Holloway, and I expect the same one to go pretty much the same. It might even end worse for Holloway. Emmett and Burgos, they are on a two and three fight winning streak, respectively. So I think that they both have a lot lot to offer there. They haven't They've beaten some names such as Ricardo Lamas and Cup Swanson, but they haven't beaten a top, top name yet. Coming into this fight, I think they are, Emmett is number seven, Burgos is sitting at number 10. So talk to me about this fight here. I think this is going to be an action-packed fight. I think this is going to be the fight of the night here. But are we looking at a fight where either one of these two men can be challenging for the title next year? Um, I, I don't know what to make of Josh Emmett. I think he's a great athlete. Who who has who has some wrestling skills? For some reason, he really doesn't choose to use the wrestling skills very often. He's but he's a great athlete. But he's a guy who who w- wins on huge. He's basically like a highlight reel player, like seeing an offensive football where they can make all the big 40, 30, 50 yard passes down the down the field. But if you need them to get a score a touchdown and they're seventeen yards out, they can't execute well enough. That's Josh Emmett to me. He's got a lot of the big general aspects that makes martial arts down: ground and pound, takedowns the general offense, punching, kicking knees, pressure, but he doesn't have the subtle nuances. His defense isn't really great. He doesn't put his offense together. It's not really cohesive. Um, it's not really consistent. He doesn't know how to blend offense and defense. To me, he doesn't really use all the three ranges of mixed martial arts, and he doesn't transition very well between the two he actually uses. Um, a lot of his success is the fact that he's big for the weight class. He's very physically strong, and he's he's so explosive that he lands one shot. He can put people away. Um, that that's that's essentially what's made his career. I can't say that he's made it because he's such a high IQ fighter. Because that's not true. He's such a defensive fighter. That's not true. He's so skilled offensively. That's not true either. 
he hits guys and guys go away. And he's he's been able to hurt and stun and punish very durable guys. Ricardo Lamas, um, Bechtick, Michael Johnson, um, you know, Scott Holzman, guys who are fairly physically durable, guys who are fairly physically tough. He's just so inefficient and incomplete as a fighter that it's easy to outwork him. You just have to be on your P's and Q's the whole fight. The question for me is, can Shane Burgos be controlled in his aggression and very deliberate and very efficient on defense? He can't give Josh Emmett a lot of openings because we've seen Josh Emmett lose three rounds to zero and then come back and late in that third round and end the fight. He can end it literally in a moment, and he's done so against guys who are known for their durability and guys who are known for their ability to recover. And he's ended their nights very quickly, very dynamically, very impressively. So it's going to come down to Shane Burgos's deliberate pressure and offensive, the the layer he the layer offensive layers he has, and Josh Emmett's athleticism and his size. Josh Emmett, I haven't really seen a fight where he hasn't been outskilled in, but I also I also haven't seen a fight where he's been outfought in where a guy seemingly wants it more than him, and a guy seemingly just beats him at his own game, which is landing bombs. He's such an athlete, that, and he's so game that he'll stay in the fight. He'll keep trying, and he's got enough athleticism and power that all he needs is that one shot. He literally only needs that one shot, and the fight's over. So the question is, can Shane fight a complete, controlled, defensively responsible fight for three rounds? If he can do it, he's going to be on the next step towards being a contender. If not, it's going to be like the Michael Johnson fight where he's going to get caught late, and he's going to be finished. I don't think you can say Emmett's a contender, I don't see enough skill growth, and I don't see enough awareness as far as his IQ. I think if Shane wins, you can legitimately start talking about somebody who's going to be in contention for a title. I'd have to see Emmett beat another guy or two before I see him, before I consider him a legitimate contender. Beating up Michael Johnson doesn't do it for me. Felipe Arantes doesn't do it for me. The fact that he lost to Desmond Green and Jeremy Stevens, who's about three or four years past his prime, prime, stands out to me. It shows me that he hasn't put it all together. And I can't say that he's improved technically in between those fights. He's still just a great athlete with a general skill set who, who depends heavily on his size and athleticism to win him fights. So until he gets past that point, um, I can't consider him a contender because I've seen lower level, lower tier fighters beat him at that game. So it's obviously not enough. It's not good enough to compete at the elite levels. So until he shows more, I can't consider him an elite guy. Shane Burgos, on the other hand, I think um, if he wins this fight, shows that he's finally putting it all together and that we really need to consider him as a legitimate contender for a potential title shot and maybe another fight, at least one more fight, maybe two, but probably at least one more fight. Okay, so two or, or one more fight. So that makes me think of the title fight we have coming up. Who went, Who comes out of um, UFC Fight Island as the champion? Just early thoughts. Um, I, I've, I've talked about this before. I've been, I've been on, and there's an art, there's a, a fight, a site called the fight site. They've discussed this is for a lot of I'm, I'm fans with a lot of friends with a lot of the guys. They're big fans of their content. The way that Volkanovsky beat Holloway is what's concerning. It wasn't a one punch knockout. It wasn't like he took him down and just submitted him and showed and took advantage of some huge hole in, in Holloway's approach. He systematically broke Holloway down. He made Holloway's volume, not an issue. He made Holloway's length. Not an issue. He made Holloway's range and punch selection. Not an issue. He made Holloway's physicality and durability. Not an issue. He broke. He was able to match everything 
except for the height and the length that Holloway brought to the table, and he was able to outmatch him and outclass him in regards to the layers of offense he had and the and the ability to not just be offensively potent and consistent and busy, but be defensively responsible. He was throwing a lot of volume. He just wasn't getting hit as much as Max was. And Max has gotten to the point where he leans heavily on his durability and just drowning you in volume. Now he's throwing a lot of lot of techniques, a lot of crisp technique when he's throwing this volume, but he's making him he's got gotten less focused on his defense. He's getting hit more than he, he was two, three years ago, and it's finally starting to catch up to him. So I don't know that in six months or a year you can make enough changes and put and hardwire them into him that he can make the fight noticeably different on a technical and strategical a strategical basis. In my regards, his team it got lazy in his development. They let him slide on it, and what he's been doing has been working. So they instead of expanding on his skill set or at least developing his awareness in other areas, they just got better at what he's doing. And that's fine until what you're doing doesn't work. And at no point did he put together enough momentum or enough offense in that fight where you could even give him a round. So you're telling me he's going to go from losing five rounds decisively and cleanly all the way to winning clearly three out of two? That's a big thing to ask for somebody when they're taking apart on every single level strategically and technically. That's a big thing to ask. And Max isn't a great athlete, and he's not a big hitter. He has to land volume to get to you. And he's matched up against a guy who can throw as much volume as he can and who can take a shot and who's got enough physicality to not get bullied and pushed around the cage. So the question is, how does Max win this fight? Based on what I've seen from the last four or five title, two or three title defenses or his last four or five fights, he doesn't have anything. He'd have to be a much different fighter. And I don't know that he can make those changes in this period of time, especially given considering we're in a pandemic and that had to affect his, cha- his, his training and his approach to training. It had to affect it. So you're telling me he's going to come up with a, come up with a brand new fight identity? It's possible. I just don't think it's very likely. So why? Uh, so you don't think it's very likely? Okay. So I think the featherweight division is going to be a group to watch for um, next year, but just because there's going to be, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of turnover in new contenders and new, not necessarily champions. We have a new champion in that division, but I think we're going to be seeing a trend of new contenders popping up. And a lot of the older individuals at the top of the rankings start to get weeded out. I think that's what's going to occur. And I'm kind of looking forward to that. Let's talk about, they have two women's fights this weekend that I think are very important. The first one being Raquel Pennington and Mary Renault. This one... I'm looking at this fight. Both women are coming off of losses. I did not know Marion Renault was 42 years old, dude. I did not know that until today. She doesn't look it. She doesn't look look it. it. Um, And, you know, she hasn't been fighting as long as as other people, but, man, she's 42. And Raquel Pennington is 31. I thought they would be closer in age, and I was looking at that like, man, at first glance, I was like, Raquel's taken much, much, much more damage across these last few fights than Renault has. So if Renault's going to make a run, she needs to make one now. And this women's bantamweight division, they're in a position where they could be without a champion. You have Amanda Nunez talking about retiring because she doesn't have anything else left to do. And we're going to talk about that in a second. That's one of the listener questions we got in. But what are your thoughts about this fight here? And how do you see it playing out? Um, I like Renault. She seems very cool. She's a gamer. She's got a good skill set. She's pretty decent on the feet. Pretty decent. She's very good on the ground. The problem with Renault has been the problem that 
has been that has plagued her for essentially the, the entirety of her career. And I know because I scouted her a little bit for Betch Cohea when they fought. Um, Marion Renault can't force a fight. She can't force a fight to where she wants it. When she has a striking advantage, when she's facing a girl who's got a certain amount of physicality or a certain amount of athleticism, she can't get them down the way she wants to, and she can't keep them from getting her down the way, the way she wants to. She, she just has no ability to force the kind of fight she wants to have when she faces a certain caliber opponent. When she's faced a lower caliber, she'll put two, three fights together. And I, I think for a period of time, she was on a two or three fight win streak. But when you look closer at who she was beating, she's beating up girls who are, who are terrible athletes, girls who are very limited in their skill sets, and girls who who don't really have a lot of wins or who, who haven't performed very well at the UFC level. And then when you see her face the girls that she's lost, a Holly Holm, a Ashley Evans-Smith, um, she lost um, when she lost against Kuniskaya and um, she lost to Zingano. I mean, Zingano is not who she used to be, but what is Zingano? Durable, physical, athletic. All of a sudden, Mary Renault could t- dictate where the fights go. Mary Renault lo- loses. Holly Holm, durable, physical, athletic. Once again, she couldn't get her down. She couldn't close the distance. She couldn't maintain pressure on her. She couldn't get away from Holmes' pressure. Lost the fight. Ashley Evans-Smith, another physical, durable, not great skill fighter, but once again, physical, durable, fairly athletic fighter. She lost that fight. I mean, beating Sarah McMahon was pretty impressive, but Sarah McMahon is a, is a head case who was the most, one of the most mistake-prone, high-level athletes I've ever seen in my life, and beating Talita Bernardo, who is a mediocre athlete with no wrestling and no striking. And then when she fought Betch Cohea, it was a draw, even though essentially Betch Cohea was pretty much giving her the business for two and a half rounds. So, I mean, Renault's a great athletic talent. She's got, like I said, decent skills, but she's never been able to dictate the pace against better athletes or better fighters. Luckily, in facing Raquel Pennington, Pennington's not a better athlete than her, but Pennington has shown a bigger bigger array of skills, and Pennington has shown some ability to transition from striking to wrestling to grappling and kind of control where a fight's going to be, whether it's forcing the clinch, getting takedowns, dragging someone down to takedown, forcing someone up against the cage through pressure and boxing. She's shown the awareness and the skill set to do that. Now, Renault has enough athleticism that if she gets taken down in bat spots, she should be able to get back up. Heck, just based off athleticism alone, she should be able to take Raquel down. She should be able to score fairly well on the feet. But once again, Renault's success has been athleticism-based, not technique-based. So when she can't scare somebody off or she can't back somebody off with her power and athleticism, her defensive holes get, start getting real wide, her offense gets really predictable, and she essentially starts getting walked down by better opposition. It's happened against every time she's faced a certain caliber of fighter. And unfortunately for her, Raquel Pennington is still the caliber of fighter she seems to hit her head against when she's trying to move to the next level. So it should be 50-50 just based on the fact that Renault is seasoned, Renault's a better athlete, and Renault has all the tools to knock Raquel Pennington out of the box. But Renault at this point isn't as good a fighter as Aldana, even though she's probably close to her athletically. And that lack of depth in her skill set and that inability to force a fight into a certain range is essentially what's going to be kicking her in the butt. It's done it her entire career. I expect it to happen again when she fights Pennington. Unless, unless Pennington's just shot. But the Pennington I saw against Irina Aldana still has something to offer. And if we see that Pennington, I don't see how she beats her. See, and I am, I'm concerned about Pennington a little bit, man. 
she's taken a lot of damage lately and I just wonder where she is in her career right now. She's only 31. She, I, she's young. She's young in, 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 in the sports space. So I'm just concerned about what these last three to four fights have done to her. And what does that, what would she look like on Saturday? Um, I think I would pick her to win, to be the favorite in, in this fight. But I am a little bit, I have, I'm a little bit apprehensive about it. I'm just con- wondering what is left of her. Oh, no, I, I agree. When she fought Aldana, I really thought she was on the edge because that beating she took not just against Nunez, but then followed it up with that horrific beating she took against Jermaine Durandamy. It, it made you wonder what she had left. But then again, we have to forget Amanda Nunez is like two, two, two levels higher than everybody in the division. She's two, level higher, two levels higher than the closest, than the top contenders, and she's like three to four levels higher than people like Pennington and, and, um, and, uh, and um, I can't think of her name, Renault. She's so much, so much more athletic, so much younger, so much better skill set, so much better coach, so much better skilled. So when you take that into consideration, even Jermaine Demandamy, Jermaine Demandamy in, in, in women's mixed martial arts is essentially an elite athlete, and she's an elite striker. In the case of Renault, Renault's a, a very good grappler, not elite. She's not even close to being an elite wrestler. She's not an elite striker. So at least in, in let's say, the grappling, Renault has a slight advantage. Wrestling should be Pennington. Striking should be Pennington. If Pennington isn't completely shot, Pennington should be a win this fight. But after all the punishment she's taken over the length of her career, you just, you just wonder, at what point is Pennington going to go over the cliff and fall? I thought it was going to happen with Aldana, who was a long, rangy, fast striker, but she didn't. She pulled it out, and she, and she, and she won fairly handily against Aldana. So I have to think, I, I I have to think that she has more than enough to win that kind of fight against Renault, who's never shown that sort of aggression and assertion on the feet, and doesn't have any sort of skill set or ability or mentality to force the fight on the ground where she does have an advantage. And even if she's trying to, I don't know that she can out wrestle Pennington. So if Pennington has something left, which I, I I have to believe she does, because she beat Aldana, and Aldana has been looking good in her last four or five fights then Pennington should win this and win this fairly handily. Uh, Renault's not a punishing fighter. She's not that type of fighter, not in pace, not in physicality, not in offensive potency. So this is a fairly risk-free fight as far as punishment taken. If, for some reason, Renault walks through Pennington, then Pennington should retire because a lot of her career is based on her physicality and her durability. If those two things go, she's not a factor in, in the division, even a division as thin in Bantamweight. But I, I have to, I'd have to favor um, Renault, uh, especially because I have to favor Pennington, even though I don't like Pennington's camp. I don't like how they coach, and I'm not, I'm not a big fan of what they've done out of three of her last four fights, but that's neither here nor there. But I'm going to go with Pennington. I still think Pennington has enough. She's got the better IQ. She's got the better skill set, and she's done it against a better level of opposition. The worst person she's beat is better than the best person that, uh, that um, Renault's beaten. Interesting. Well... You said the worst person that Raquel has beat is better than the best person that Renault's beaten? Is that, yeah. is that what you just said? I think so. I gotta go to I the be- videotape on that one. Hold on. Let me let me check. I gotta go to the videotape on that one there, sir. Okay, so we got Raquel Pennington at 10 and 8 mm-hmm. and Marion Renault at 9 and 5. 42 years old, man. She's a teacher, too. It's pretty badass, Tough in one. my opinion. Tough one, man. So you could say 
All right, Raquel Peterson has wins over Misha Tate, Jessica Andrade. I'm guessing Irene Aldana is the most valuable one right now. Yeah, I guess um, I guess I'd say I'd say I'd say I mean they fought a lot of the same pe- they fought a lot of the same people to be quite honest. Except um, for the most part, um, Pennington just hasn't lost to the people that Renault's lost to. Where she's beaten Ashley Evan Smith and she beat Betch Cahea. One person who had a draw with Renault and the other person beat her. And I so, and I, yeah, and so it, Renault lost to Holly Holm. She drew the Betch Cahea. She lost to Ashley of Evan Smith. Um, they both have wins over Jessica Andrade. Yeah. And Sarah McMahon is probably Renault's best win. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah, I'm wrong on that one. I'm not not far off, but I am wrong on that one. Because her, I guess the worst person she fought in the UFC would probably be, uh, I don't know, Mata Ferry. I think person, is a better fighter. I think Mata Ferry is a better fighter than McCann, McMahon. The only thing about Mata Ferry is she's small. She's small. Yeah, she is, but she she's a better. To me, she's a better fighter. I, I get it, but I'm like, she, she's a better fighter. The worst person she's, she's beaten, Les, Leslie Smith, not Leslie Smith. Um, Elizabeth Phillips is probably the worst person she's beat. Elizabeth Phillips is not better than than Sarah McMahon. So that they, is true. They both have lost to Kat Zingano as well too. Um, both lost the home in, in Zingano. Yeah, and they both and they, lost them. Yeah, but yeah, I, I'm gonna. I'm still gonna go with Pennington. Like I said, it's you, you never know at the, at the with the punishment she's taken. It, it, any day she could go, but based off the Aldana fight and even based off the home fight, she didn't look great. She didn't look dynamic, but she's she did she she didn't look overwhelmed. She didn't look particularly class. She just fought a really stupid fight. But outside of fighting a stupid fight. I, I can't say that I've seen her look really bad in the last two. And I, I still don't know that I believe that Renault can force a fight in any particular range. And in two of the ranges she's fighting in, in my opinion, Pennington is better than her. So I, I'm just going to go with Pennington. And um, like I said, if Pennington loses, especially by stoppage, she should really think about retiring because Renault's not that kind of fighter. Yeah, and I'm, I'm interested. I like I want to see what Renault looks like. I'm leaning Pennington as well, too. I'm just concerned about how she's looked over her last few fights. Uh, next, and we talked about, we, we mentioned her, Roxanne Matafari. She has a big fight against Lauren Murphy. They're at the very bottom of the damn card. I think they're the second fight of the night. But this is probably the most important women's fight on the card here. You have Matafari, who is ranked number six or seven. Out, no, she's seven and Murphy's eight. Uh, let me make sure I confirm that real quick. Uh, women's flyweight, yes. No, Matafari is six, and Murphy is seven. This is an important fight for them because it puts them puts the winner, I believe, it'll put them in, in the uh, top five. Probably bump Jessica I out of the top five. You know, you have Jennifer Maya, Yolanda Calderwood, Tithi Calvillo, and Ch- Caitlin Chukagian. I love the Roxanne Matafari push. She keeps, she finds a way to win when she probably shouldn't, and she keeps getting that done. However, looking at this fight on Sunday, I think Lauren Murphy is too smart of a fighter to fall for the same type of things that like a Macy Barber or Antonia Shevchenko fell for. Um, I, I would say that's probably good, a good note. Um, the big advantage Lauren Murphy has is the same. But the thing is, the advantages Murphy has over Mataferi is the advantages that everybody has over Mataferi. She's, she's bigger. She's probably stronger. She's probably a little bit more physical probably hits a little bit harder, might be a little bit more durable. I can't say she's as skilled. I can't say she's more skilled. I think on the gra- on, on the feet, it's fairly even. Um, the, the Where the advantages come in, I think that she's a better wrestler. I think Mata Ferry's 
probably an overall better gra- better grappler. And I think Montefiore's beaten a, a higher class of opponent. It just comes down to a matter of how smart, how if Murphy is going to come with the right game plan. Essentially, Montefiore isn't a great wrestling 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 threat. Essentially, Montefiore is awkward on the feet. I mean, she puts things together, but a lot of her success comes off her timing and her awkwardness, not necessarily her skill and her execution. If you can figure out her timing, you can attack the body, you can attack the legs, you can essentially shut down what she wants to do offensively on the feet. The question is, is Murphy going to be poised enough to do so? Because Murphy's not fighting a young girl who's inexperienced. Murphy's not like the, she's not fighting Andrea Lee, who she has, who she, who, who's kind of a limited fighter and more of a fighter who gets by on points and volume. Uh, she's fighting a person who's as experienced, if not more so than her, who, who's got as high IQ, if not more than her, and a person who's very well coached. I'm going to say that Montefiore actually pulls this out. If Murphy wins it, Murphy's got to fight a perfectly clean fight. And I've seen, I've seen Montefiore fight clean fight. I've never really seen Lauren Murphy fight a clean fight. And um, I don't think athleticism is going to be a big issue. Neither one of them is a spring chicken. Neither one of them is a great athlete. I think it's just going to come down to um, Montefiore's work rate, her savviness, and her, her all-round skills. And it's going to come down to Murphy's aggression and her physicality. I mean, she throws a lot of volume, but she's not a really a techni- technical type striker. So I think everything's kind of a wash. It's going to come down to will her physicality and her aggression be enough to o- overtake Montefiore's IQ and her versatility as far as a fighter? I don't think it will be. So I, I think Montefiore's on a run. I think Montefiore realizes this is her last go around, and I think Montefiore's a better fighter. I like Lauren Murphy, but her last two wins aren't nearly as, pr- as impressive as the ones that. Um, Montefiore had, and I don't necessarily know that um, Murphy beats the people that Montefiore's beat in her time um, at this weight class. See, and the thing is, I want I want to see Montefiore go all the way and defy all the odds and win the title. That's what I want to see. Will that happen? Probably not. More like 90%? No. But the ride to get there has been enjoyable. She's someone that She's someone that the UFC should elevate. She is the epitome of that person who looks like they got bullied throughout their whole life, learned martial arts, and now can beat most of the people up that were bullying her at some point in time. She's like the model UFC uh, UFC fighter that, that they can present as this is someone you can't who is almost bulletproof. You won't so find they- her out there making videos like Mike Perry. You won't find her wrecking a car, drunk driving. You won't find her getting into a fight at a bar or something like that, unless she's swooping in to save someone else's life or something like that. But they put her as a second fight on on the car. And that just kind of blows my mind. I want to see her continue to defy the odds and get the wins that she needs to the point where she can't be denied any uh, title shot. The thing is, they they don't like her. Uh, Remember we had a... Uh, I forgot who was the first champion in the weight class. Nico. We had Nico's coach on there, mm-hmm. and we were talking to her. And they didn't. It wasn't. They really weren't looking for Montefiore to be the winner. They were one of the girls they were pushing her before, but now Montefiore has fallen by the wayside. They're not really focused on Montefiore. I mean, Montefiore's had two really impressive wins, and yet nobody's talking about her getting a title fight. Nobody's even mentioned her. Cynthia Calvillo just won one, and all of a sudden she's in title fight talks. It's very odd how that works. I don't think they're. I think they're fans of Montefiore as far as a fighter. She has a little bit of a cult following. 
but I don't think they really think she's a seller or, or, or a needle mover, as Dana White says. So I don't think they're on the Modafferi train. And I think for her to get a title shot, she's going to have to beat somebody and, and she's going to have to keep on beating people. She has no margin for error, whereas people like Caitlin Chukagan, she lost a fight, won one more fight, and then she's in for a title fight. How do you figure that? Uh, um, Liz Carmouche lost a fight, won, more, won, won a fight, and then was in for a title fight. How do you figure that? You know, I mean, how is how is Modafferi not made some more headway in moving up the rankings, considering where she started at in the division as the first title challenger, and the fact that she really hasn't lost any fights, you know, just decisively, just one-sidedly. She she's been pretty competitive in every fight she's been in, and she's won the most most of her fights in the division. Yet nobody speaks about her. Same thing with Murphy. Murphy's not. They don't want Murphy to be a champion. She's older. She doesn't have the the appeal. She doesn't have an exciting style. They have no interest in putting a belt around her or putting her in a position to get a belt. So if she wants to win one, she's going to have to put win after win after win together, and they're going to do everything they can to offset her or put somebody else in there before. And when they run out of exciting, sexy challengers or popular challengers, then her or Mata Ferry is going to get their shot. The biggest thing I like about Mata Ferry is she essentially changed herself as a fighter. Late in the game, she was a fighter who had no striking at all. She was just god-awful. No good at ground and pound. She was essentially a grappler. That's it. And she turned into a competent striker, offensively and defensively. And she turned into somebody who's pretty savage when it comes to unloading ground and pound on the ground. Like, I've never seen a fighter that late in their career make such an adjustment as far as their fighting style and their ability to effectively implement a new fighting style within the context of the, of, of the, within the structure of the original style they had. I've never seen it. Most fighters don't go from grapp- pure grappler to savage ground and pound or incompetent striker to, you know, a pretty good one at all. No, you, you don't see that. Damian Maya is a better striker than he was when he began, but he ain't great. You put him on the feet long enough, he just gets chipped up. Roxanne Matafari's held her own with multiple fighters who, are, on paper, are far superior strikers to her. I mean, she really changed the whole storyline on who she is as a fighter, and I'm very impressed with her. The fact that she was able to make those changes at this level of, at this level of competition, this late in the game, it's... It's something that's just amazing to me. Amazing to see, amazing to have heard about, and then to see it work its way out. So I'm a big fan of Matafari. I really hope she wins this. And being as objective as I can, I would like to see her win this because I feel she deserves one more crack at the title. And I feel they could make a storyline around her challenging Valentina or if somehow JoJo wins, her challenging JoJo. I think there's a very legitimate storyline you can make with one of the few veterans of women's mixed martial arts, like someone who's really been through the entire ascension of women's mixed martial arts. So um, I, I'd like to see her win, and um, I, I think she's going to get it done. Uh, and both her, her and Murphy, they're on their last legs. Um, I, don't, I don't think the UFC is big fans of them. I don't think they'd be going out of their way to sign them to contracts. I think it's the time is now for both fighters, and they need to make their push and make it now. Yeah, I, I hope she gets the win and she can make a push to get a, a title shot. I would just love that, love that story as a whole. Um, what else stands out for you on this card? Is there anything else from UFC on Vegas, UFC Vegas uh, three that you're looking forward yeah, to seeing? Yeah, the um, Brianna Van Buren came over from a uh, from Invicta. She's fighting Tisha Torres, and I feel like this fight's going to be a version of. I think Van Buren's pretty raw right now. She's got a decent skill set, but she's not very seasoned. She hasn't really developed the layers or the wet, the width of skills necessary right now. She's getting by on physicality and, and wrestling and aggression. She's like a um, maybe a less accomplished Jessica Andrade. I think she's probably one of the best 
most physical and most punishing fighters in division without without having really fought the UFC a lot. I feel she has those tools to to go on a run similar to what Jessica Andrade did, and um, I think she's one to to watch for. Right now, she doesn't she doesn't necessarily have the skills, but against somebody like Tisha Torres, who is a name, who has some wins in the UFC, who has some cachet, I think she's facing the perfect opponent, one who's a good enough athlete to test her, but not so great a fighter, not so great a finisher that if she gets in a bad spot, that she's going to have years taken off her career because she takes so much punishment or is going to necessarily be finished because Torres really isn't that kind of fighter. So this is great matchmaking, and you have a established fighter who's more of a gatekeeper right now, and you have a young fighter who's got all the physical tools and a lot of momentum behind them coming into the UFC. And this is like what, what I consider really good matchmaking and a really important fight moving forward for the division. Um, so I, I'm very excited about that fight. And uh, as far as anything else, to be honest, the girls' fights have the most interest in me than, than any of the fights on the card. I think they're more important their divisions. I think they're more important individually to the fighters' careers, and they're more important for the divisions. A lot of the fights in the men's careers are a lot of fringe contender fights, like 15, 13 ring kind of guys, guys who aren't really in the mix to be a contender. And whether they win or they lose, their division isn't going to be too shaken up by it either way. And all the women's fights, whoever wins or loses, is going to be taking huge steps forwards or backwards as far as their ranking as far as being potential challengers or potential contenders for a title. Thoughts, good thoughts there, sir. We have one listener question today, one very easy question. It's about um, Amanda Nunez. When we're talking about whether or not she's really going to retire. So she's been talking about this. It came out this week that she's uh, basically saying she has the money that she needs. She has plans and if she has a baby on the way, um, that she may be walking away from the uh, sport. Do you think she's done? Uh, I And do you think she's done for real? Because the question is, why would she come back? What is left for her to do at this point in time? What is left for her to do in her career at this, at, at this moment? I don't think there's anything else done needed for her to be needed for her in this space. But if she was the retired, do you think she is really done? Or is it just another one of these ploys that the fighters have been doing lately? Well, unlike somebody like uh, Henry Cejudo, who's never really gotten paid, or John Jones, and I know comparatively they haven't they haven't gotten paid their worth. Um, Amanda Nunes got to fight the biggest star in the sport. She got to fight Ronda Rousey, and she got to fight her as a champion, which means she got championship points on a very very high selling card, which means she made a lot of money. She's actually gotten a career-altering payday, much like Nate Diaz did, much like Eddie Alvarez did, much like other people have. She got that big payday. She got that that cachet. And even though she wasn't she wasn't she wasn't the focus of the uh, event, she as far as a champion, because we know they pushed Ronda. She got paid like she she got paid like a champion, and she got paid more than a lot of the male champions got because she was on a matchup that was more important and more popular than the ones they are. So she's gotten a big payday. She fought Cyborg. She probably made a lot of money off that too. Cyborg's fairly popular. She fought Holly Holm. Holly Holm's fairly popular. So she made a lot of money. She's made a lot of money. In her last five fights, five or six fights, she's probably got, gotten close to career high paydays in at least three or four of them. And she's made very good money. She's established herself as a, as a double champion. She's defended both belts. She's considered one of the best fighters in women's mixed martial arts. To some, she's one of the best fighters in mixed martial arts, period. 
nothing she does from here on out is going to change that. If she loses her next fight, that's not going to change her standing. Just like when Cyborg lost to her, it didn't change her standing. If she wins the next three or four fights in a row, it's not going to change her standing because she's going to be facing people that are athletically inferior to her, technically inferior to her, and are inferior as far as their coaching and their experience level. There's not many girls who are on her level in either division. Megan Anderson isn't. Felicia Spencer wasn't. Um, Irene Aldana wasn't. Holly Holm was proven not to be. There's not a lot of money fights out there. She, the UFC, I can't imagine, is going to get behind her any more so than they have before. And I don't know that anything she does, if you don't become a star after fighting Ronda Rousey, Misha Tate, and Holly Holm, I don't know that being a star is, in, in, being a star is, is meant for you. I don't know that's going to happen. You fight the biggest names in your, in your sport, and you haven't somehow translated that into stardom, I don't know that stardom's there for you. So as far as there's nothing, there's nothing that's going to hurt her legacy. There's nothing that's going to build her legacy. And there's no opponent she can fight where she's going to make the money she fought, she made to fight Cyborg, to fight home, or to fight Rousey. There's nobody out there. She'd have to fight two or three of those fights to make up, to make what she made all around against those people. So I, I don't really see a purpose for her to be about there. And I can't imagine the UFC is going to raise her, her pay. If you're not raising Conor McGregor's pay, you're telling Conor McGregor to take a walk. What the, what the hell are you doing trying to convince Amanda Nunes to come back? No offense. As good as she is and as popular as she is, she ain't as popular as Conor. I, I don't know that she's more popular than John Jones. So if you're telling John Jones, Conor McGregor, Jorge Masvidal, take a walk, I'm not paying you. I don't know why you somehow open up the pocketbooks for Amanda Nunes, who hasn't proven herself to be a draw. She's only drawn when she's faced named girls. So I don't know why you would open up the pocketbooks for her. So if it's about more money, I can't imagine she gets it. And if it's about legacy, there's nothing she can do that's going to improve it. So what's the point of keep? What's the point of going? So there's a couple of different pieces there. When it comes to the money, um, they they don't need any fighter because they're getting their money in from ESPN. As long as they're putting on cards, they're getting paid. That's all that really matters to them on the back end. So I never think it's about money. I, like no fighter is ever going to leverage the UFC to get money. You hear about them signing new contracts that are eight and 10 fight deals. That's a problem in my opinion. Like that, that's a mistake on, on their part, but they're never going to be able to have the leverage to get out of that. So there's that piece of it. I do believe there is a, there is a point though that the UFC doesn't, doesn't do it it doesn't do a good enough job promoting athletes in a way that their brand can be larger the ufc's job is they always put the brand first they never they they do not want any fighter bigger than the the brand itself the nfl does this wwe does this um the NBA does not. That's why some individuals like a LeBron, like a, like a Steph Curry and others become massive stars. They allow the players to be their own brands outside of their, outside of the space. Football, it kind of happens from a here and there standpoint, but that's why like a Patrick Mahomes, he isn't even as big of a star as like a Peyton Manning was or a Tom Brady or something like that. Granted, he hasn't had the same level of, of success, but the opportunity is there. The UFC does not put fighters, or it does not help fighters get into a position to be bigger stars. I mean, if you think about it, they're owned by the largest talent company 
in the entertainment industry today. And you mean to tell me they can't help fighters get into additional spaces where they could be, they could have more uh, exposure? Ronda Rousey was such a horrible actress that she didn't even talk in her first two roles, I think. Like, that's how bad of an actress she is. You mean to tell me that they couldn't find a movie for Gina Carano, too? She was such a horrible actress. She didn't talk in her first few movies, her, her first few films. But they found a way to get her into movies then, and that helped her statue. I'm not saying that Amanda Nunez would be able to do the same thing, but she's not the only one. There's so many individuals who I, I, I look at where it's, they struggle to make new stars because the brand is being put first. Same thing with the WWE. They're having a hard time right now building new stars. They haven't built any stars since John Cena. And when they had Cena around, they couldn't build any new stars either because they kept putting WWE first over everything else, not seeing what the correlation between the two would do. And they're suffering massively now. That's part of the reason why their ratings are so down week over week. So when it comes back back to the UFC, yes, Amanda Nunez is not as big of a star as Ronda Rousey was at, at any point in time, or even Cyborg. She wasn't a big draw like that. But part of the reason that is the case is because UFC does not do their due diligence in helping these athletes become stars. I, I understand there, that. There's too many examples of that. I understand that complaint, but it's like... It's like going into a relationship with somebody who's abusive and then being shocked when they beat you. The UFC's never done They don't make stars. They give you a platform, and they let you determine if you're going to become a star or not. They've pushed people before who weren't stars. They pushed Roger Huerta. He didn't become a star. They tried to make Sage North kind of thing. He didn't become a star. They can push you all they want. You have to get the wins, and you have to do something that, that, that justifies you being a star. You have to have a charisma or something. Andre Ward was one of the best fighters of all time. He could not sell anything because no one cared about him. They just didn't care. Nobody wants to see him. Nobody wants to hear him talk. Nobody has any interest in him. He just doesn't have one. And I think Amanda Nunes, I don't know that she'd ever be a superstar type fighter. I've never gotten superstar type vibes from her. I've never been so excited to see her fight when she's not fighting a named person. I don't care if she's fighting when she fought Alicia Spencer. I wasn't excited about that. We, people were excited to see Donald Cowboy fight, uh, Donald, excuse me, Conor McGregor fight. Donald Cerrone, who we know has had issues in big fights, who he lost his last fight by knockout, people came in droves to see him fight him. When he fought Nate Diaz, Nate Diaz, who's a little bit better than a 500 fighter, people came in droves to see Conor McGregor fight him. Amanda Nunes has never had that interest. She's never had that impact. As a regional fighter, she didn't. In Brazil, she's not a huge star. Among the the LB, I can't even say it right, the, the gay and lesbian community, I don't know that she's a big star either. I don't know where she's a big star at. And everybody keeps saying the UFC should make you a big star, UFC makes a big star. The UFC can't make stars. They've tried to push Paige Van Zandt. She wasn't a big star. They tried to push Holly Holm. Holly Holm's not even really a big star. Sage Northcutt, Roger Huerta, there's lots of people they tried to push into being stars who didn't become stars. They didn't try and push Derek Lewis to become a star. Derek Lewis made himself a star. Conor McGregor was See, already huge. I'm going to disagree, disagree with you there because what I've seen is that the UFC tries to push people to be stars until they don't want to do what, they, what the UFC wants them to do. Paige Van Zandt is a crossover star. That's why she makes so much money off. Man. That's why she makes, dude, she makes more money than the entire women's division just about off of her Instagram posts. 
you like that period right there nullifies that whole conversation. She was Felice, on, Felice Herrick. The same thing applies for Felice Herrick, but Felice Herrick did her own work. That's what what Carlos Sparza is saying. I can't before, pay my bills. That was before the UFC, though. That was before. But I'm, I'm, she was, I'm, but that's, she was in the UFC. But that's my example. Like, she made a neighbor. She's like, dude, I don't even have a fight. Aren't you worried about money? No, my sponsors got me. How the hell does Carla Sparza not have a sponsor? Why Why hadn't, why didn't she be doing this? You don't do the work once you become big. You do the work so when you get big, you can maximize it. Conor McGregor was already building up a brand before he became big in the UFC. He had already got momentum. Amanda Nunes is like, well, I'm the best now. I should be a star. And I'm like, where's your team? Your team ain't doing this? Where's your team at? Your teammate, your teammate said nothing up for you. I know the UFC like my should. My understanding I... is her, the two commercials she's got, she's got on on her own. UFC had nothing to do with that. Um, you can look at. You said you mentioned Roger Huerta when he became big. That Sports Illustrated cover that he was on, he got mm-hmm. that on his own. The UFC didn't get that for him. And actually, after he got that, if you've been watching the Joe Silva um, tweet tweet feed that's been going on lately, that's when Joe Silva told Gray Maynard to hurt Roger Huerta because they were so pissed at him for getting the opportunity on his own. So but, but that, they, that just makes my, that makes my point even more. You have all these people who their team and themselves got them these positions. What the hell is stopping the, the first gay ch- women's champion that we that we know of and women's Bashar, the first double defending <sighs> double champion who's gay and a minority how how is her team not highlighting? I ain't seen her in any any magazines. I don't see her in any of the pride talks. I don't see her speaking. I don't see her being involved. You tell me these events don't want the double champion, the those dominant fighters. They don't want her speaking there. Well, how is this possible? How is I this mean, possible? You, you definitely have a you definitely have a, a a point on that standpoint. I do believe it should be a 50-50 job where the fighters are doing X and the um the organization is doing X. But we know that the UFC actively works to cut down their fighters. Well, let, let's put it like this. They, they tried to cut down Nick, Nick Diaz. He didn't have it. Let, Ronda Rousey is the closest thing to Conor McGregor the women have. Nate Diaz fought, fought Conor McGregor. And this dude is like on Good Morning America. He, he broke through. He was huge after when after Nate one Diaz fight. Has ever been on Nate Diaz? Been I, on, I don't mean I don't mean like he was on. I mean like the, I mean the crossover. Like everybody knew who he was after this fight. My Are you question sure is, about that though? Because I I feel like Nate Diaz is a cult class. Like he's a cult star. MMA MMA fans know Nate Diaz, and that's I, about it. I feel like I've and I, maybe I'm wrong. I feel like after his fight with Connor, he became known. All over. I feel like he was just getting all sorts of attention from other people. People were just like, even that bat, the BMF belt, that was all because of the Connor fight. Years, the two Connor fights created this huge demand for Nate and made this huge uh, folk hero out of Nate. And Nate exploited it because of how who he's been up until that point. Amanda Nunes fought women's Connor McGregor, the biggest star out there, and she handled her. And then nothing. <laughs> how is that you, possible? Like, how is that possible? How do you think I, I, the biggest I think that star? Part of that, I think a big part of that is her, though. Like a big part of that is um, exactly. what Amanda early. That's her fault. But, they, but that's the UFC still, for, from a fact, the UFC still has never done anything to elevate her. No, they they yeah. haven't. But I'm like, you you can't you you can't you can't depend you can't depend on this. Should they do it? Yeah, that's their job. They should. But they don't. We've already stated they haven't done that for everybody. So if you know they're not going to do it, stop complaining about it and do something about it. You, the UFC already helped you. They gave you Home, Cyborg, Tate, and Rousey, the four biggest names 
pay-per-view sellers, people, big fan base, they gave you the biggest names almost in a row. You had them all. If you can't become famous off of fighting Misha Tate, Holly Holm, Cyborg, and Rousey, fame isn't meant for you. You ain't fighting a bunch of Felicia Spencer. You're fighting the biggest names in the sport. And you still couldn't get anything going. That's like, that's like, I, I don't know what that's like. I, I don't know what to compare it to. It's like selling 10 million albums and nobody knows who you are. How do you do that? How, how do you do that? I put you on a song, I put you on a song with um, Future. I, get, I, I have Future rapping with you and your album, album doesn't even go gold? Excuse me? You did a song with Justin Timberlake and your album didn't go platinum? I gave you Justin. What else do you want me to do? That's some interesting thoughts there, sir. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna end this conversation there because I don't think we're ever gonna see eye, eye on that one. But I mean, I think we we both have some solid points there. Uh, let's let everybody know what we're working on. Uh, I will saying? finally this week be releasing my articles. I had to. I just keep having to chop stuff out because I just I look back at some of my articles and I realize I'm being a bit harsh in the things I'm saying. And so I'm trying to be a better person. So I'm trying to make my point without making anybody seem grossly incompetent or just outright stupid. So I have to keep rewriting it because I look back at some of the old ones and I'm like, why would you say that about that person? That person's got a family. They have a husband, a wife. There's no need for you to be taking these kind of shots at people. So I'm trying to make sure I just address the points and don't, don't make anybody seem questionable or incompetent when I'm doing it. True. Understood. Um, I am working on actually just, just the wrestling and um, MMA work that I've usually been doing. Nothing really new there. Uh, yeah, that's really it, man. <laughs> Don't really have too much to add. Well, I, have, I have one question for you so before, we, before we end the show. Mm-hmm. You know they've been having these Joe Silva stories, right? Yes. And, and I'm not for Joe Silva. I'm not for Dana White, not for the UFC. But, and may, maybe this is wrong. I know some companies are employee first. But even the biggest and best companies, aren't they generally, their main concern is their bottom line? Like, they, they want who, they, they, they switch favorites every day. Whoever can get the job done is who they like. Whoever gets them the most money is who they like. And I, I feel bad for fighters because they are being taken advantage of. They're not getting the money they, they deserve and all that other stuff. But how is that different than the majority of us who work for companies that underpay us? I mean, I know fighting's tough. Fine, fighting's tough. I get it. But you don't have to be a fighter, though. Like, it's your dream. It's what you want to do. It's maybe even what you're good at. But there's lots of us who are good singers who can't make a career off singing. There's lots of people who are good at basketball. They can't make a career off basketball. There's lots of people who are good at computers. They can't make a career. They're just not good enough. How is that any different than other people who can't, you know, when it gets to the point where you, you can't make a living, how do you not have to find another job? That's what everybody else has to do. You like to play basketball. You're not good enough. What happens to you? You got to find another job. You got a family. You got kids. You don't just get to keep on trying to make it a basketball and complain that you don't have money. Like most companies do what's in their best interest. And, I, and these are ex, they're extreme and they're gross. But how is that different than 95% of the companies that regular people work for, where they put people at risk, having them going out in pandemics, going into offices, making deliveries and all this other nonsense, filling stocks so they could make their money and meet their bottom line. I mean, how is that any different? The fighters are like, we're fighting a pandemic. People at H&B are working in a pandemic. People delivering food are working in a pandemic. People working so in hospitals are working in a pandemic. It's different about the situation. I'm going to use something else I saw today as an example. The feud between Danny Garcia and Oscar De La Hoya. Oh, Ryan Garcia? Ryan Garcia. I'm sorry. I said Danny Garcia. The thing Ryan, Ryan said that is most prevalent to this conversation is 
speaking of Oscar de la Hoya, he's basically said, you're a promoter. Your job is to promote me. So everybody makes money. In the case of the UFC, I find it, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing to me that they spend so much time tearing down their fighters, but then still expect us to want to see them fight. Like that, like if they spent as much energy and time building their fighters up in a way that made us want to see them compete, everybody makes more money. Everybody gets more exposure. Everybody wins. But they do the opposite. And I understand why that frustration is so prevalent within so many of the other fighters when they continue to do the opposite and they just leave them hanging out there. Like, yo, you're supposed to be in my corner, but instead you want to do everything you can possibly do to tear me down every step of the way. So I understand why so many fighters have an issue with that. Yeah, I, I get that point of it, but I'm like, how's that any difference when you have a, a department and they're always saying how they're they're not fast enough, they're not this enough, they're not that enough. You didn't fire them, but you, they're not good enough to get raises, they're not good enough to get promotions, but somehow they're good enough to work for your company for 10 years? How does that work? I mean, because I'm not saying individuals have rights. I'm not, I'm not workers' rights. I'm not saying that they're not in a tough situation, but my only my old question I always have is this: is like one, almost all of us work for companies that are going to take care of themselves before they take care of us. If somebody's going to, if the company goes under, somehow the people at the top end of the company get severance packages, and all the people who live check to check get nothing. So there's not as much of a difference between us and the fighters in that regard. And secondly, if I'm talking to, I've talked to fighters, I'd be like, oh man, I can't pay my bill, blah, blah, blah. You know the first thing they tell me? Why don't you get another job? If this job doesn't take care of your family, you have responsibilities. Why don't you take care of it? Well, you're telling me you're fighting. It's not paying you. You're shortening your career. You're impacting your quality of life. You're not making enough money to, to take that risk, but you keep on doing it. I want you to get paid better, but I have no control over that. So if you have a wife and kids you need to take care of, how do you not make an adjustment? Now, if you're single and do whatever, hey, that's your business. But when you got responsibilities, an adjustment has to be made. Either you need to find a way to make money outside of it, or you have to make money within it. And if you can't, wouldn't you have to make a change in your wouldn't you have to make a change in your career? Because the business isn't here for you. You're here for the business because they pay you. The business isn't here for you. They're here for themselves. All the businesses are here for themselves. They don't hire you because they like you. They hire you because they think you can do the job and help them make money. If you can't make the money, they don't want you. And the UFC couldn't pay better than everybody else, they wouldn't want the UFC. Ain't nobody doing this for the love of it. Interesting, interesting thoughts there, sir. I appreciate you, you sharing as, as such. I think that, that may, let's see if that continues, and we'll add that to the conversation list for next week. Okay, sir. But with that in mind, man, we're going to go ahead and close out. We'll be back next week. Thank you for everyone for listening to this week's edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Stay safe and stay, at it, and stay inside. Have a good weekend. Yes. Stay out the streets, man. Stay out the streets. Y'all take it easy.